Section 6 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Ruskin, Part 3. After the magnificent work done by Ruskin in art up to his fortieth year, that he should turn, for practically the remainder of his life, to the seemingly vain and profitless task of a social reformer and regenerator of modern society, has to most men been a riddle too elusive and enigmatic to solve. And yet, in his earlier career, had he not himself prepared us for just such a departure as he took in the sixties? For in art was he not equally revolutionary and iconoclastic, as well as personally self-willed, passionate, and impulsive? Moreover, had not Mother Nature endowed him with the gifts of a seer, and made him chivalrous as well as intensely sympathetic, while his early training inclined him to be serious and even ascetic? Nor were the rebuffs he met with throughout his career calculated at this stage to make him court the applause of his fellow man or be mindful of the world's censure or approval. Nor can one well quarrel with what he had now to say on many a subject, visionary and enthusiast as he always was, and given over to medieval views and preachments, and to abounding moral and ethical exhortation, like Carlyle's, his voice was that of one crying in the wilderness, and yet in the industrial and social condition of Britain at the era there was need of just such appeals for regeneration and reform as Ruskin strenuously uttered, accompanied by indignant rebukes of grossness, vulgarity, and meanness, as manifested in masses of the people. If in his strivings after amelioration he was too denunciatory as well as too radical, we must remember the temper and manner of the man, and recognize how difficult it was in him, or in any iconoclast who scorned modern science as Ruskin scorned it, to reconcile the age of steam and industrial machinery, which he spurned and would have none of, with the views he held of Christianity, morals, and faith. His views on political economy, which he treated neither as an art nor a science, might be perverse and wrong-headed, and his method of adapting prophetic and apostolic principles to the practice of everyday life utterly impracticable. But the virtues he counseled the nation to manifest, and the graces he enjoined of truthfulness, justice, temperance, bravery, and obedience, were qualities needed to be cultivated in his time, with a fuller recognition of and firmer trust in God and his right of sway in the world he had created. What Ruskin's economic views were and what his relations to the industrial and social problems of his time, most readers of our author know, are mainly to be found in Fors Clavigera, a series of letters to working men covering the years 1871 to 84, and in his early essays on political economy, Unto This Last, 1860, and Munera Pulveris, 1863. Unto This Last appeared in its original form in the pages of the Cornhill Magazine, then edited by Thackeray, and our author speaks confidently of it as embodying his maturest and worthiest thoughts on social science. The work, which will be found the key to Ruskin's economic gospel, embraces four essays, treating successively of the responsibilities and duties of those called to fill all office of national trust and service, of the true sources of a nation's riches, of the right distribution of such riches, and of what is meant by the economic terms value, wealth, price, and produce. Under these several heads, Ruskin expresses his conviction that cooperation and government are in all things the law of life, 
while the deadly things are competition and anarchy. Whatever errors the book contains, and the author's unconscious arrogance and dogmatism made him blind to them, his views were set forth with his accustomed vigor and eloquence, and in the honest belief that he was more than fundamentally right. It was for such helpful work as this, and what he accomplished in the kindred volume Munera Pulveris, which first appeared in Fraser's magazine, that Ruskin for the time dropped his revelations in art to let a new world of thought into the dismal science of political economy, confound its old-time instructors, and gird at the evils of the age, the greed, selfishness, and petty bargaining spirits of industrial and commercial life. Nor in conducting such a crusade as this was Ruskin abandoning his old and less controverted gospel of art. He was but carrying into new and barren fields the high ideals he had hitherto counseled his age to emulate and heed, and in his sympathy with labor seeking to bring into its world the comeliness of beauty and the cheer of prosperity, comfort, and happiness. In Time and Tide, 1867, and more at length in Fors Clavigera, Ruskin reiterates his message to labor to get rid of ever-environing misery by realizing what are the true sources of happiness. Pleasure in sincere and honest work, inspired by intelligence, culture, religion, and right living. What he desires for the working man, he desires also for his family, and consequently he urges parents to train their sons and daughters to see and love the beautiful, to cultivate their higher instincts, and call forth and feed their souls. In all this, there is much helpful tonic thought which the church or the nation, roused to zeal and earnest activity, might fittingly teach, and so advance the material wheel of the people, extend the area of public enlightenment and morality, and herald the dawn of a new and higher civilization. Other aspects of Mr. Ruskin's economic gospel are unfortunately not so sane and beneficent. His altruism knows no bounds, as his philanthropy and zeal have but few restraints. After the fashion of his mentor, Carlyle, he is carried away by his humanitarianism and his unreserved acceptance of the doctrine of the equality and brotherhood of man. Hence come his economic heresies in regard to rent and interest and capital and usury, his denunciations of the division of labor, his Tolstoyan impoverishment of himself for the benefit of his fellow man, and his dictum that the wealth of the nation should be its own and not accrue to the individual. Hence also the holy ideal state of society he attempted to realize in his communal guild of St. George, with its rigid government and restraints upon the personal liberty of its members. Ideally beautiful, admittedly, was the plan and scheme of the little state, with its disciplinings, exactions, and devout selective creed. But the age is a practical, unimaginative one, and whatever compacts men make, even for their highest welfare, there are, it is to be feared, few so loyal, tractable, and docile as to place themselves for long under such tutoring and one-patterned, fashioning forms of cooperative living. Into whatever millennial state Ruskin sought to usher his little band of English followers and disciples, one must speak appreciatively of his motives in projecting the scheme, and of the money and labor he personally lavished upon the utopian project. Reverently, also, must one speak of the Catholic creed to which its members were asked to subscribe, namely, to trust in God, recognize the nobleness of human nature, labor faithfully with one's might, be loyal to one's common country, its laws and its monarchs or rulers' orders, so far as they are consistent with the higher law of God, while exacting obedience and a pledge that one will not deceive, either for gain or other motive, 
will not rob, will not hurt any living creature, nor destroy any beautiful thing, and will honor one's own body by proper care for it, for the joy and peace of life. All this is very exemplary and beautiful, and not over-hard to live up to, though the working men of Sheffield, in time, wearied of the organization, and the guild and its noble ideals, is now, we believe, but a memory, if we accept the art museum and library of the order, taken over and still maintained by the town. More practical, may we not say, than this imitation of the Florentine R.T. of the Middle Ages was the Working Men's College, founded in London in the 50s by that other earnest Christian socialist, F.D. Maurice, in which Ruskin lectured gratuitously, took charge of the drawing classes, and hied off to the country with its members to sketch from nature and otherwise instruct and entertain them. Yet good in many respects came of the Guild of St. George, in the impulse it gave to the revival of the then-dormant industries, such as the hand-spinning of linen, hand-weaving of carpets and woolen fabrics, lace-making, wood-carving, and metal-working, besides the stimulus it gave, with the infusion of higher ideals of workmanship, to the decorative arts, and the improvement in the sightliness of factories and in the homes and surroundings of labor. Here Ruskin's philanthropy and reform zeal showed themselves most worthily in the financial aid he gave in the pulling down, in crowded districts of the British metropolis, of poor tenements, and the building up, in their place, of clean, attractive, and wholesome habitations. In such benevolences and well-doings, and in this life of renunciation and self-sacrifice, Ruskin spent himself and made serious inroads into his bodily health and strength, as well as scattered the fortune, about a million dollars, left him by his now-deceased father. But this was the manner and character of Ruskin, and this the mode of expressing his love for his fellow man, which in myriad ways showed itself throughout a long and strenuous career of devotion to high ideals, and of practical tender help in all good works. In all his philanthropies he was true to his own preachings and counselings, spending and being spent in the spirit of his divine master, his whole soul aglow with reverence and adoration and tender with a profound moral emotion. Besides his rare endowments as a lover of the beautiful, he had that other precious gift, of golden speech, which threw a mantle of loveliness over every book he wrote and the perpetual luster over the domain of letters. Ruskin's declining years, while hallowed by suffering, were cheered by many tender attentions and unexpected kindnesses, and by the recognition, by many notable public bodies and eminent contemporaries, of his long life of great service and devotion to his kind. In our modern age, from which, in his loved Coniston home, he passed from life January twentieth, 1900. No one more reverently than he has looked deeper into the mystery of life, thought more concernedly of its problems, shed more passionately and eloquently about him love for the beautiful, or practically and helpfully done more, layman only though he was, for religion and humanity. At his death, the nation paid honor to his memory by offering his remains a resting place in the great fane of England's illustrious dead, Westminster Abbey, but Ruskin had himself otherwise ordered the disposal of his body. Bury me, he said, at Coniston. And there, on the fifth day after his falling softly asleep, amid a concourse of loving friends, the earthly tenement of the great art critic and lover of righteousness was laid to rest, his grave strewn with myriad wreaths, garlands, and crosses of beautiful, bright flowers. Here, after his long, strenuous, militant career, do we leave this inspiring teacher and consecrated priest of the ideal, his gentle soul finding rest and peace after the myriad troubles and tumults of life. 
still now is the once active fertile stimulating mind of the man who so effectively roused his generation from its complacent smugness and indifference in its appreciation of the beautiful and with ardent boldness challenged established beliefs in art and defied the conventionality and authority of his time he has been a powerful force in innumerable departments of human thought and epic-making the influence he has exerted in giving to the world new ideals of the beautiful and in shaping modern opinion and taste in art how great is the work he has done and what a library of stimulating inspiring books he has left us comparatively few realize as they little realize what the age owes to him for his noble activities in well-doing and his many and impressive lessons and influence in a commonplace commercial time how stimulating as well as ardent have been his appeals for sensitiveness of perception in regard to art and of the tone and spirit in which it ought to be viewed and valued and with what tender reverent feeling has he not opened our hearts to compassion and to consideration for the welfare of our fellow-man and how potent have been his counsellings pointing to the true and abiding sources of pleasure in life long must his formative opinions and influence extend and in the minds of all who think and reflect abiding must be the charm as well as the power of his imaginative glowing thought that he met with opposition and hostility in his day was but the price to be paid for the disturbing correcting disciplining yet inspiring part he played in the work he so impulsively set himself to do one smiles now at the epithets of scorn and contumely once hurled at him at the man who little understood as he has been has done so much to uplift and purify the thought of his time and do battle with the forces opposed to reform and arrayed against those of light and truth and how great were the weapons with which he was armed and how varied as well as marvellous the talents he brought into play in the onslaught upon shallowness convention and ignorance truly he has done much for his time and great has been the gain modern art has won from his inspiring lessons and thought the coming of such a man and at the time that was his one cannot help reflecting was one of the providences of an overruling power and adequately to estimate his influence and work and the tone and temper in which he wrought we have but to consider what the age would have been in countless departments of thought and activity had the century now passed possessed no john ruskin authorities collingwood w g life of ruskin harrison friedrich tennyson ruskin mill and other estimates mather marshall john ruskin his life and teaching bain peter lessons from my masters carlyle tennyson and ruskin jap alex h carlyle tennyson and ruskin spielman m h john ruskin waldstein charles work of john ruskin ward may alden prophets of the nineteenth century carlyle ruskin and tolstoy bates herbert annotated edition with introduction of ruskin's sesame and lilies and the king of the golden river ruskin's praeterita an autobiography end of section six